Welcome to the Market Sell Win Podcast. We are so lucky to have with us today, Mark Brandt. With a career that spans more than 30 years, there's really so much to listen to and learn from Mark's experiences. He's worked both sides of the business aisle, from being an entrepreneur where he started his own multi-million dollar venture capital firm, to working in executive business development capacities for billion dollar companies like Cargill, RSM US, and Northern Trust. He's an entrepreneur at heart, and the common thread throughout his career has been sales. In our five-part series, Mark will talk about his career journey, and you are gonna love hearing his perspective on the importance of targeting, nailing the first meeting, how to stay relevant, and why winning the business is not the end, but really just the beginning. In this first segment, we're gonna focus on Mark's career path, the skills that he's found to be important, and the impact mentors have had in shaping his career. Welcome to the show, Mark. Thank you, Julie. So our podcast is focused on marketing and sales professionals. And my goal is really to share their stories to help others who are either starting their career, stuck in their career, or just trying to get better at what they do. And I think not everybody has the the benefit of having a mentor or really somebody that they can talk to about their career. And maybe um, it will be helpful for them to hear from somebody who's been doing sales and marketing for a long time to hear like literally what they do and what it's like. So that's why I'm so excited to have you with us today because you've had such a rich business experience. And wow, your story is like so varied and I'm just, I'm not even sure where to start. So I think maybe chronologically is a good place to start. And if you're like any of the other guests I've had on, my guess is that um, it starts way back into your childhood on some of the things that happened then that have had an influence on your journey and the steps that you've taken to get where you are. So let me turn it over to you. Tell us your story. Well, it's funny, uh, Julie, when I hear people introduce themselves and they start at a very young age, I have a common uh, phrase that I share with them. I say, when you get to the second grade, please speed it up a little bit. <laughs> so, <laughs> I, I was going to say, look, I don't want every detail about your life because we, we don't have that much time, but, you know, hit the highlights. Okay. But I will tell you that my business career starts in second grade. I was the fourth child of five children and uh, a family that was, there was a lot of love. My father was an entrepreneur. My mother was a stay-at-home mom through second grade, and she went back to college and got her master's degree and went back to teaching after many years of raising us kids. And uh, my father had a business that had good years and bad years. And I learned at a young age that I could contribute to the benefit of my family by making money, um, cutting my neighbor's yards, pulling weeds, cleaning out their basements, painting their houses, moving, doing whatever people needed, house sitting, dog sitting, you know, babysitting, whatever the neighbors needed, I did. And I got a reputation as being kind of the go-to guy. When I was a senior in high school, my dad took me aside and he said, I have good news and I have bad news. He said, what do you want to hear first? I said, what's the bad news? He said, the economy's been terrible. Interest rates are 22%. I can't sell houses and I'm in the business of selling houses and I can't pay for your college. I said, geez, Dad, that is bad news. Hey, what's the good news? He said, well, I've been watching you your whole life, and I really believe that you have the entrepreneurial skills to start your own business and pay your way through college. 
And four years later, I graduated from Cornell University on the dean's list with no debt and a resume that included a balance sheet for starting my own business. And it led to 10 job offers. And I was very happy that I took the lowest job offer, which was Cargill Incorporated, and I went into their grain trading program. And nine months after I took that offer, the highest paid offer I had, which was more than double what I was making at Cargill, was on Wall Street, New York City, and I would have been laid off. Wow. So I did the right thing, and I based it on the education that I thought I'd get from Cargill. I ended up staying there 11 years, and I moved into, uh, I moved from trading to sales, and Cargill was kind of new on the whole sales track, and I just, I loved it. Being involved with a big company and something that a lot of people would assume would be a commodity, I learned how to ask the question, what makes us different, Mm. and then really explain what's different about us versus other people. And if you can do it in a business that people call a commodity, you can do it in any business. Such a good point. I mean, that's so obviously so important from sales and not, it's something that not everyone's comfortable with doing. They don't know how to articulate it. Well, it's interesting, Julie, and a number of the opportunities and jobs that I've had, some of the first thing I do is I go to the people that are at the top of the organization and I say, why should customers want to be with us? Mm-hmm. And they look at me with kind of like that pause, like flabbergasted look like, well, why would you be asking me that? <laughs> and sometimes I have to explain, I have to be able to answer that quickly. In the first five seconds, I better know that answer or we're not going to be able to really grow this business together. Because if you don't know why you're better than everyone else, don't expect everyone else to know it. <laughs> it's so true. So true. So where did you go after after Cargill? Well, it was really interesting. I had a contact through my alumni organization, and he was a very senior consultant in the food industry. And he was a partner at Arthur Anderson, and he hired me to come to Arthur Anderson Business Consulting in Chicago on West Monroe Street, and I worked with a really talented group of smart people. I came in as as a director, and so I had both a business development role, but I also built out my time, and boy, it's embarrassing to admit, but I remember I built out at $465 an hour, even back then. So, um, yeah, that it, it's a little bit of an ego boost, but it's also a lot of responsibility. Yeah, I would imagine. <laughs> When I was billing out by the hour, I was like, I better find these people a lot of value. And uh, I really took the, you know, the billing hourly rate very serious. And I thought, I'd better do a good job at what I do. Was that a big shift for you going from more on like the consumer product side with Cargill to professional services? Yeah, it was fun, though, because at Cargill, I really called on plant managers and general managers. And I went to plants over, I covered a five-state region. I covered North and South Dakota, Minnesota, Iowa, and Nebraska. That was my very first territory. And you think, boy, that's a lot of land without a lot of people. And it's probably true, but there was salad dressing plants. There were candy plants. There were meat packing plants. There was, uh, you know, milk and dairy plants. Um, One of my favorite clients was I called on the Trappistine Nuns. 
and they made caramels and we sold them their corn syrup. And every time I would leave, they'd say, well, we're going to pray for you. And I thought this is the only business customer in my whole life that's ever going to tell me they're praying for me on the way out the door. <laughs> exactly. Particularly the salesperson. <laughs> oh, I thought I have the best job ever. I go sell corn syrup to these nuns and they pray for me. <laughs> so, um, one, when you were at Arthur Anderson, um, how long were you there and kind of where did it go from there? And maybe like, what were the steps that led you to your next step in the, you know, piece of your journey? All right. So great question, because what happened was I stayed at Cargill longer than I ever thought I would. I kept thinking I'd go for two, maybe four years and go get an MBA. That was the track that people wanted to do. And every time I got ready to get an MBA, Cargill would promote me. I got promoted nine times in 11 years, and I moved a lot. And it was tons of fun. I loved it. But um, I got over to Arthur Anderson. I was doing sales and consulting on the consumer side. Instead of working with plant managers and general managers, I worked with CEOs and CFOs. And it was a different kind of sale. Boy, you had to be buttoned down. It was not just strictly a relationship. It was about what can you do for the company, how quickly, and what kind of ROI is involved. And you better be able to articulate it and put the right people in front of them at the right time. Missteps were not tolerated. And Arthur Anderson was just a really fun kind of like all bright type A personality people to work together. We had a client in Rochester, New York, and it was a grocery chain by the name of Wegmans Food Market. And we went in there and we did a pretty big kind of like scoping project. It never turned into a sale, but it was the initial meeting. And out of that, I met a uh, senior finance person and he said, hey, we have taken our accounts payable from 68 people down to six. Do you think that there's a business here? And I thought, I think he's asking me to help him start a business. But I quickly backed up and I thought, do you want it to be a consulting business or a software business? And it turned out that was the right question. I co-founded the company. We raised uh, initially $400,000. That was my job. And then $1.2 million and then $10 million. And by the time we were all said and done, we raised $32 million for the company. We landed Target and Procter & Gamble as our first two customers. It was in that big dot-com era, but this was a B2B business sale. And eventually, and I say it that way on purpose, the company did sell to Oracle. And a lot of the software that we built is part of the Oracle retail system today. It didn't sell in the time frame where my options were valuable. So I learned a lot, but I didn't make a big exit on that. But I learned so much. And out of that, a family office invited me to come in and start a venture capital fund inside their family office. They committed several million dollars to me under the basis that I would go out and raise several million more. And we found a company out of my college, and it was a nanotech company. We took it out to Silicon Valley, and we ended up raising $250 million for that company. And it went on an IPO for close to a billion dollars. And that was just a phenomenal experience. And I say that story like it happened chronologically. That was a story that took eight years to really unfold, and it's still unfolding. The company's still growing. It's still on the NASDAQ. It's a uh, nanotechnology company in the biotech space. And 
I learned so, so much in that experience. But in the end, um, 2008 hit. The economy was fairly rough. And I went back to my roots. I went back to the accounting world, and I started working at RSM. And I helped RSM grow their Ohio market, and my role was business development once again. I was hired by a really talented female mentor, and she really had my back from the get-go. It kind of coached me what it was going to take to succeed, and I thought I'd stay two to three years, and I ended up staying there eight years, and I loved what I did. And I grew the business dramatically, and I found that private equity was a really ripe opportunity for our firm. And um, I grew a network through marketing and through sales that I was looked at by a lot of people as one of the top business developers in the Northeast Ohio market. Well, that is so interesting. So, you know, tell us maybe... Well, here, let me tell you, you continue on with your journey, but at some point I want to hear, like, what does a day look like in terms of, you know, a, a salesperson like yourself? Well, it's funny. Some days I actually think, wouldn't it be cool if someone followed me around and actually took notes? <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> what, 60 minutes? They go, what's a day in the life of Mark Grant right. look like? Right. You know, I, I probably... I'm undiagnosed, but I might be ADD, and I can stay really focused on a task at hand, but I can't do the same task all day, every day. I just get, I get bored. So what I typically need to do is kind of scratch new challenges throughout a day. So I, I told you this when we were preparing for this, but about six years ago, six and a half years ago, I had not run as a you know runner outside many, many years. I'd had stomach issues, and my wife figured out that I was allergic to dairy and gluten. And in a very short period of time, I went from being incapacitated to kind of untethered and being able to go out and run again. And I thought, golly, I wonder what a 5K would look like or a five-miler would look like. So I started going back to my high school track training, and I went outside, and I started running around the block. And I mean, at first, Julie, it was ugly. I was, you know, overweight and moving pretty slow. And I went from kind of 12-minute miles to 10-minute miles to 8-minute miles to 7-minute miles. And I went out and did my first five-mile race, and I did five miles and seven-minute miles, finished it in 35 minutes. Wow. And I came second place in my age group. But that wasn't my goal. My goal was a ten, a 5K about a month later. And I took off for that race, and I averaged six minute and 40-second miles, and I finished a 5K in just over 20 minutes. And I won my age group by over two minutes. And I realized I still had some speed in me after all these years. So um, I did a charity cancer fundraiser on my bike, which ended up being 200 miles over two days. And I started putting it all together going, I can bike pretty far. I can still run pretty fast. I need to learn how to swim. So literally, I went to the little local swim teacher at the YMCA, and the cute little kids and their little tutus were coming out of the pool, and this hairy middle-aged guy was coming in. <laughs> and they were, they were better swimmers than I was, but I worked at it, and I worked at it. And I now have done, um, I've done 14 Ironmen. I did two full distance Ironmen, 
which is a 2.4 mile swim, 112 mile bike, and a full 26.2 mile marathon at the end. I did two of those, and I've done 14 half Ironmen, which is just half of all those distances. This past year, I had three top 10 finishes, and I qualified for the World Championships in Nice, France. And I finished at the World Championships 163rd in the world, my age group, out of 280. And I'm currently ranked in the top 120 in the world, my age group. And what I found is I am still a world-class runner. And my friends from high school go, when did this happen? You were never fast in high school. And I said, dude, I just have one thing to say. I didn't have to get faster. I just couldn't get much slower. (laughs) So I got older and I'm fast for my age group. And so I think I've proven that you can age well. And so back to a long answer about my day, I run, bike, swim, or lift every single day. And I work in my work around that. And I'm currently in the process of bringing a triathlon back to downtown Cleveland. There was one here for a long time. It went out of business a year or so ago. And we're recreating a whole new triathlon. I've had to raise a couple hundred thousand dollars to make that happen, and I'm doing that. And I'm going to own and operate the event, and I'm working with the Cleveland Triathlon Club, which has 550 members to kind of get them behind it. But we think we can do, you know, Philadelphia and New York have eight, ten thousand 10,000 people in their downtown uh, triathlons. We think we can do that in Cleveland, and I'm the guy that's leading up that effort. Um, I also started an investment bank in the fall. I call it Maple Group LLC. I'm working with high net worth families that I've helped sell their business, and I'm helping them figure out how to buy their next company. And I'm also working with a couple companies on capital raises where they're good companies, they have good metrics, but they need to raise either debt or equity. And I'm taking them on as an investment banking client would. And I'm out there raising money for these companies. So I do that in addition to being a business developer in the accounting industry. And I think you're getting the picture here. There's a lot going on in any one day. And I also am an avid reader. I try and read about, you know, a book a week. So I try and get through, you know, between 30 and 50 books a year. And, um, you know, from the time I wake up till the time I go to sleep, I'm generally doing something pretty fun. Wow. Uh, there's a lot there. That is so awesome. I mean, just the physical piece of it, because I am nowhere near you, but that just, when you prove to yourself what you're capable of doing, you feel like you can set the world on fire. Am I putting words in your mouth? No, like literally this morning, I jumped in the car and I drove down to a real muddy trail, an off-road trail. I ran four miles on the trail and I got in the car and I just felt high as a kite, Mm -hmm. like just the flat out running high and the oxygen high and the leaves and the squirrels and the deer. And, you know, it's just so pretty being outside. And so you just feel like you feel empowered to be able to go do whatever you want to do. Totally, totally agree. So let me let me tie some of this back to like what if you when you think about everything that you're doing now um, as a full fledged adult, like what are some of the skills? And I'm going to lean on soft skills versus technical skills. But like, what are some of those skills that you think have really suited you well? Because I think this is important for others to hear when they're thinking about their careers. You know, 
I'm not a typical salesperson. I lead with empathy. I don't lead with product ever. If you don't walk in the room and connect with that person, and I had a boss tell me real early on, I'll tell you what he told me because it helped, but I've taken it so much further than what he told me. He said, if you walk in someone's office and you look on the wall and there's a Boy Scout memento there, or there's a picture of his kids or a picture of his wife, he's inviting you or she's inviting you to ask a question about what's on the wall. Are you involved with the Boy Scouts? So you have a family? Are those your kids? Oh, is that your wife? Tell me about where you were, You and your wife were in this picture because there's a palm tree in the background. That must have been a really fun time of your life. So that's what he told me to do. And it sounds a little bit salesy when you take it like that. But really the way I've taken it over time is it's not about selling. It's about connecting. And whether you sell or you don't sell, if you connect with someone, you both won. If you walk away from a meeting with someone and they feel like, boy, that person made me feel good. That was the highlight of my day. When you call that person back and you want to talk again, they're going to remember that and they're going to take that call with you. If you walk in there and it's all about, here's my product, here's the features, here's the benefits, man, they get that ad nauseum and you're not understanding where they're at. I have coached people on so many things over their life. You know, I don't stop them. When they say, I'm having a really rough time, what are you having a rough time? Well, I hurt my hip. How'd you hurt your hip? I was playing basketball and I landed on my friend's foot and it hasn't felt the same since. I ask questions about their hip. So tell me, does it hurt when you walk? Does it hurt more when you run? Does it hurt more when you jump? I get a feel for it. And if they live in my town, I recommend either a physical therapist or an acupuncturist or a chiropractor or whatever I feel. I've had every injury there is, and I've overcome almost all of them, and I know the best doctors, so I start there. Julie, this gets a little deep, maybe deeper than you want, but sometimes people are depressed or their wife is depressed or their marriage is bad. Nobody goes there. Nobody that they work with goes there, and nobody that they know will go there. If you can look in their eye and you can see sadness and say, what's going on in your life, and you can get them to open up, You've done something that connects you two forever and ever and ever. And I've not just had good times, I've had bad times. I've been through a bad divorce. I've dealt with mental illness of my family, and I've had to overcome a number of issues there. I had a cousin commit suicide a year ago. I've been through a lot. We all have. Oh, sorry. And, yeah. the, question, and the question is, do you put that out there to help people? Or do you keep that hurt deep, deep inside of you? My belief is your hurt can be someone else's heal. Mm -hmm. And I've always tried to be available and be there for anyone. I think that's why I have so many good friends is because they know they can share anything with me. And I'm going to do everything I can to try and help them. And oh, by the way, I sell accounting services and I'm an investment banker. Right. Right. You know, I don't know why it is that people, maybe they feel they're being too vulnerable or maybe they think it's not going to be well received, but we are just people at the end of the day. And I, I agree. If you can connect at that human level, um, it, it, it just, it's more fulfilling period. <laughs> you know, you're just in life. So oh, there's, there's no doubt that, you know, the, the typical American response is 
How are you? I'm fine. Right. Let me ask you something. When you say, how are you, do you really want to know how the person is? And when you say you're fine, do you really mean it? Yeah. I would ask everyone on this podcast, everyone that's listening to reappraise when they walk up to someone, we're not going to be handshaking and hugging anytime soon. But instead of saying, how are you doing? Ask it in a very genuine way. Pause, look in their eyes and say, how's life? And you're going to hear something very interesting. I know this because I do this. They're going to say, you mean business life or life life? And you look them right in the eye and say, what do you want to talk about? And inevitably, they're going to go, okay, this guy just opened up. I can talk about my life. Mm -hmm. And everyone wants to talk about their life. You're right. And there really aren't for some people, a lot of people to do that with. So when they, you kind of get that permission to like, let it rip, you're like, well, yeah, you know what? Thanks for asking. You know, <laughs> actually it's really rough right now. And for whatever the reason might be. So great, great insight. So let me ask you um, a couple of closing questions. What role have mentors played in your career? A massive role. It's you know, that crazy show, you know, who wants to be a millionaire? And you get to the point where you have your lifelines and you can phone a friend, right? Right. My mentors have served as the phone a friend for my whole life. And I have worked really hard to cultivate relationships with really influential, busy people. I've been fortunate in my life. I've been friendly with probably 10 billionaires and many, many millionaires, and many people that I just plain flat out respect. There's a lady that I met a number of years ago that runs a, um, a crisis center for uh, human trafficking victims. And I became a fundraiser and a board member and an advisor to her, and she's been an advisor back to me, and we've just cultivated this amazing relationship. But I guess what I would say is my advisors are really the phone of friend. When I run into a problem and I realize I either am in too deep or I'm about to get in too deep or I'm about to jump into something that I don't really know that well, I pick up the phone and I phone a friend and I say, listen, here's where I'm at. I'm about to do something. Is this the right way to do it? How would you handle this situation? And boy, you know, it just, it's what mentors want. They want you to reach out and ask for advice. They don't want to hear you got in trouble because you didn't have the guts or the gumption to pick up and call them. And I cultivate those relationships. I do what I can to support those people. If I know they're being honored in some capacity, I'm sitting in the front row. Mm -hmm. And if, uh, if I know that, you know, over the years, I've had a lot of tickets to plays and concerts and sporting events. I pick up the phone and I call those mentors and I offer them those tickets. And I make sure they know that they're valuable to me. So when I need them, I can pick up the phone and I can ask for advice. And that's the way I've launched, you know, I've launched a number of economic development initiatives. They've all been very successful. I've been part of probably 10 or 15 not-for-profit boards, and I've had to do fundraising for a lot of those. I've been very successful at a lot of that. A lot of it is just cultivating really good relationships with influential people. 
So if you were to roll back the clock 30 years, what is one piece of advice you would have given yourself about your future career path? Well, I'm going to say something that probably would surprise you and your podcast listeners. Really, money is not that important. What's important is love and family. And if you can focus on building a loving, caring family around you, you're going to be more successful than most of the people in the world. And quite the contrary, I have been around really wealthy people in my career. And it's almost more challenging when it gets to a hundred million or five hundred million or a billion dollars. It's very challenging for those people to just have a normal life because their kids, their family, their community, everyone's looking to them for something. So it's almost been a blessing to be successful, but not so successful that I have a choice of not working at all. I have a choice of doing what I want to do, but I have to work. And I think if the choice is I can either not work or work, I think it's a whole different thing. So I feel really good that um, I feel blessed to have to wake up and know that I've got to produce every day and every week and every month of my life. I have options. I can go on trips for a week or two or three weeks. I've been able to go on really cool trips. But I know I got to come back and I got to keep working when I get home. It's a blessing. So how's that for a surprising one? <laughs> well, after listening to you talk for the last, you know, 25 minutes, I'm like, yeah, not surprising at all. So um, I think that is sage, sage advice. All right. So let me end it on a, on a light note. So after you've had a rough day, and even though we have to work and we love doing it, right, we still have those rough days. What is your go-to song that like just snaps you out of it. James Taylor, you've got a friend. Ah, uh, love it. Love it. Awesome. Yeah. Just one of my favorite songs of all time. Just, uh, you know, one of the great songs, songwriters, singers, you know, just a ballad that just goes right to the core of my heart. Ah. Uh. That is sweet and great to hear. So, all right. Well, thank you so much, Mark. Boy, this has been wonderful to hear your story. And you're so genuine. So thank you. Um, I mean, this is who you are, but thank you for taking your time to be with us today. Sincerely, we appreciate it. You're welcome. Thanks, Julie.